0: I wonder who you um, might give a home to. One of the things that's been in the news a lot the last week or two is uh, the British government asking members of the population to potentially open their homes to Ukrainian refugees on my neighborhood WhatsApp group. There's been people talking about doing that. I know some of my neighbors are planning to offer spaces to Ukrainian refugees, and as a church, we Seeing if there's, we can coordinate that in some way. If you got our mailer last week, you've seen various links to that, and also to, as well as giving money, uh, potentially offering a room, potentially even going to serve with churches in Poland for a week or so, helping them as they help Ukrainian refugees. Maybe you're thinking about should I or could I? Am I capable of offering a bed to a Ukrainian refugee? We're in this uh, teaching series called A House for My Name, working through the whole of the Old Testament, seeing how. God is building a house for his name and the amazing thing about this story is that God actually wants to live with us. This is God's invitation to us, come and dwell with me. This is the wonder of the gospel that God throws his doors open to us and says, come live with me, that God promises to dwell with his people, make his house amongst us, that we ourselves somehow would become a house for God's name. This is the the miracle of the gospel. This is the good news. Uh, Finding Jesus is finding the pearl of great price, finding the great treasure that we get to know and live with God. That's what it's all about. But as we're tracing this story through, we're now up to the book of First Kings. What we see again and again is that God's people actually refuse this treasure rather than embracing what God is offering, rather than dwelling happily in his house with him. Again and again, God's people are more like stroppy teenagers who say, I hate it here. I don't want to be here. And again and again, refuse God. God prepares the house and his people say, no thanks. Don't want to be here. And we're currently in the uh, part of the story which has got us up to the era of the kings. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the story of King Saul, who was the the first true king of Israel and started so brilliantly, but then gave in to his uncontrollable emotions and rejected God and uh, fell from the kingship. And then last week, we are looking at the story of King David, which is a much better story, but of course, always uh, shaded by the reality of David's sin. Whenever we talk about David and his successes and who he was as a man, we also talk about his great failing, the time when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, had Bathsheba's wife, Uriah, killed, and all the tragedy and the mess of that. But despite that, what we see with David is that David chose the way of humility. And so despite his gross sin, actually the verdict over David in the end is a positive one, because he came back to God in humility. And David then becomes the model for All kings, David is the one that God promises to build a house for. God is building a house for his name, and he says to David, I'm going to build a house for you as well. And whenever we think about David, we then immediately think about the son of David, because God says, It's to your son that I will give all that I've promised. And we know where that story reaches its conclusion. It's where uh, we've already been in our worship, and where this message is driving to uh, is actually this hope of the gospel that we have. Jesus, the great treasure, the great son of David, that's what the story is driving to. But this morning, before we dig further into Jesus and what he's done for us, let's look at the story of David's literal son, physical son, Bathsheba's son, Solomon. David was the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had, but it was under King Solomon that the nation reached its greatest state. Uh, Solomon was a great king, but again it's a story with a bit of a tragic end, because Solomon seems to more follow the trajectory of Saul than he follows the trajectory of David. That Solomon starts brilliantly like Saul did, but in the end he ends somewhat tragically. But we're going to start this story of Solomon by looking at the ways in which Solomon did what a king should do, represents what a king should be, the way in which Solomon actually is a kind of a model king for us. And that's true even in in the UK. When a a monarch is appointed in the UK, ever since George II was crowned in 1727, at the moment of the anointing of the new monarch and the placing of the crown upon the monarch's head, the choir sing Handel's chorus, Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon King. We should have a little clip, might be a bit fuzzy at 70 years old, of the queen's coronation. Chris is looking slightly concerned. Let's see if this works. Not looking hopeful, Chris? You can go home and watch it on YouTube. When the moment the monarch is crowned, the choir sings, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, anointed Solomon king, and all the people rejoiced, and all the people rejoiced, and all the people rejoiced. So there's a, a sense in which, even in, in, in our culture, that Solomon remains the model king. When the, our current queen, God bless her, finally passes the crown to Charles, that will be what is pronounced, so kind of a Solomon-type blessing. Solomon is the kind of the model. So let's, let's look at what Solomon was like and why he is the model king. First thing about Solomon is his kingly wisdom. This is what it says in 1 Kings 3. As Gibeon, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, "'Since you've asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked.'" I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Solomon asked for wisdom, for discernment in leading this people. What would we want for our rulers? We would want God's given wisdom for them. And at this time, whether you like our current rulers or not, surely what we would ask for them of God is for Wisdom. God grant them wisdom. That should be our prayer. God grant our rulers wisdom. God grant Boris Johnson and cabinet ministers. Grant them wisdom in the current complexities of life and of the world. Because if God gives rulers wisdom, that's for the benefit of all of us. So God, would you give wisdom to those who have rule over us? Now, wisdom is not just the same as intelligence, Solomon was clearly a highly able, intelligent man. But uh, wisdom and intelligence are somewhat distinct. Uh, Wisdom is something which God can give or God can withhold. And sometimes uh, the reality is that even people who are very intelligent are not necessarily particularly wise. And it might be that you can think of people like this, known people like this, who are very academically gifted, but just are more daft than wise. And uh, that's always... Seems somewhat sad and tragic. Uh, The human race is meant to rule. God gave us the rule of the earth. Psalm 8, He's made us little lower angels. He's made us to rule. And that means that each one of us actually is meant to be like a king in our area of life, starting in our own hearts. There's meant to be a godly rule. And that's meant to extend then to the things which God in his grace has entrusted to us. Whatever that is, however small or however large it is. Your work, your employment, your relationships, your house, the place where you live. There's a sense in which you are to exercise a kingly rule over it. That's got what God has made us for. And that means that we need wisdom. God grant us wisdom. We pray that those who rule over us would be given God God-granted wisdom. We need to pray for ourselves. God, give me wisdom in the, in the areas where I have been called to rule, the things I've been given responsibility for, the things I have authority over. Let me rule with wisdom. And God gives wisdom, it says in James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and the first sign of wisdom is knowing when you lack it, knowing when you're being daft, recognizing that and asking for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Without finding fault, you might have been Daft times on number. But if you recognize that and ask God, he doesn't find fault with all your previous daftness. God is more gracious. gracious. It will be given to you. That's a great prayer to pray for ourselves. Lord, give me wisdom. This day, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom today. Give me wisdom in what I've got to do today. Give me wisdom with the responsibilities I have today. Give me wisdom in the relationships I'm going to be in today. God, give us wisdom. Let's pray. Let's pray it for our rulers. Let's pray it for ourselves. Pray it for this church. Pray it for those of us who are elders. God, give us wisdom so that we can act in a way which brings life and health and which isn't daft and destructive. Solomon asked for wisdom. He was given it. The second thing is that Solomon carried a kingly blessing. We'd want our rulers to form good alliances with other nations. And we see that with Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 5. Solomon makes an alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, a close-by nation. And Solomon and and Hiram work together in the construction of the temple. It had been David's plan, great dream, to build a temple, a house for God. doesn't fall to him, it falls to his son Solomon to do that. But Solomon does that in cooperation with Hiram, king of Tyre. And there's more than just a a bilateral trade deal which is being done here. It's good when you get trade deals with other nations, but there's more than just a, a trade deal that's being done between Solomon and Hiram. What we see here is that a foreign nation is being drawn into participation in the worship of God. Solomon is building the temple, which is going to be the center of worship of the living God. And Hiram, who is not an Israelite, not a descendant of Abraham, he is involved, invited into the construction of the temple, invited into the worship of God. And so, what we see here is a prophetic thing that's happening that God is building a house for his name. But that is going to be a house which is for all nations. The promise that Abraham had received from God was that he would be blessed and his descendants would be a blessing to all nations. And at this time in history, the era of the kings, this blessing has been particularly received and worked out through the literal descendants of Abraham, citizens of the nation of Israel. But we see In the relationship between Solomon and Hiram, this kind of prophetic picture of what's going to happen, that other peoples, other nations are going to be drawn into the house of God. And so Hiram is involved in the very construction of the house of God. It's a a prophetic thing that's happening, a prophetic blessing. And we see something similar in the other foreign ruler who uh, we read about who has a relationship with Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba visits Solomon in Jerusalem. And she said to the king, the reports I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who is delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness how happy your people must be how happy your officials who stand before you and hear your wisdom solomon is like the best boss in the world, Imagine this is your scenario, you turn up to work each day and you're just so happy to stand in the presence of your boss because of the wisdom that is coming out of their lips moment by moment, hour by hour. Or imagine you are the boss in your workplace, maybe you are, and your workers, the people you employ come and they're just so happy to see you every day because it's going to be another day of wisdom pouring from your lips. It's not quite how it is in, in, even in our church office. As we uh, turn up each day. It's not quite the same. How happy. Solomon, just the the best boss in, in the world. But the thing here is that the Queen of Sheba sees that the Lord, Yahweh, God of heaven, is behind Solomon's success. The reason... That everybody in Solomon's court is so happy to be in Solomon's presence is because Solomon knows the presence of God. It's, it's the Lord's blessing on him. There's a kingly blessing upon him. The Lord delights in you and has placed you on your throne. Solomon is good news for the nations because God has been good news for him. And there should be a sense in which we as the people of God, the church, should bring something of this wisdom, blessing, happiness, which we see the Queen of Sheba identifying in the court of Solomon. As we trust in and delight in the living God, there should be an experience of God's blessing, God's faith, God's wisdom amongst us, which does mean that there's a happiness. amongst. We are glad to come into the house of the Lord. We're glad to come into God's presence. That should prophetically be displayed through us just as it was through Solomon, just as the Queen of Sheba coming from a different nation saw the reality of what happens when god 's in the house. That should be what the Church of Jesus Christ displays should be what we display here in BCP, this kingly blessing that is ours in God. The next thing that Solomon displays is a kingly security brings security to the nation now In our point in history, talking about borders can be controversial, uh, as we think at the moment with uh, migrants coming across the channel and small boats and all that kind of stuff. It can be very controversial how we deal with those kind of things. But we want a ruler who can, in some sense, guarantee the borders, who can bring security to the nation, bring peace to the nation. And that's what Solomon did in a way which was quite unique in the history of the kings of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life it's under king solomon that the nation of israel achieved its maximum geographical range now david solomon's father was the great warrior king we think of david as this great warrior his kingship starts with the killing of Goliath and it goes on from there. He's a great warrior. Solomon is a man of peace, but it's under Solomon that the territorial expansion of Israel reaches its maximum extent. He reigns over a far greater area than does King David. And this isn't just about geopolitics. Actually, what's happening here is that God's promise to his people, God's promise to Abraham, is being fulfilled. Back in Genesis 15... It says that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, as this promise of possession of the land. And the only time that happened in the history of the nation of Israel was when Solomon was king. And so there's, again, it's a kind of a prophetic thing. that What was promised to Abraham is being worked out, fulfilled. Under the reign, the wise reign of King Solomon. He's a king who is heir of the promises that God has made. Now for us this year, as we feel particularly that uh, the Lord has led us into a a theme for the year of, of new adventures. Pushing into new adventures of faith. What are those things that we need to lay hold of that are ours in Christ? What promises has God made? What kind of expansion, territorial expansion has God promised us, which we are to step into in faith and by God's grace received, just as Solomon received the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. And then we see, lastly, in terms of his accomplishments, that Solomon built a kingly house. Chapters 5 through 8 of First Kings are all about the construction of the temple and the construction of Solomon's palace. And this is done under the instruction and the blessing of God. It's not just as we do, as we're doing with our building project, Alder Road, under the instruction and wisdom of architects and engineers and surveyors and the rest the building of the temple and the palace was done under the instruction and under the blessing of God. And we see God's favor in this, 1 Kings chapter 8. The temple has been built, and it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, this cloud of God's glory, the cloud of God's presence, the cloud which had accompanied the Israelites in the wilderness, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. The, the, the presence of God is so tangible, so thick, so overwhelming, that the priests have to withdraw. They can't minister because God is so powerfully present. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Before this, the people of Israel had an had acacia wood box covered in gold, the Ark of the Covenants, which represented the presence of God, and that was housed within the tabernacle, a tent, and it traveled around as the Israelites traveled around. Now Solomon builds a permanent house for God to dwell in, under God's instruction, with God's blessing, and alongside that in the same complex Solomon builds his own house a palace and so what we have is the house of God and the house of the king together and God's rule God's blessing then being worked out through God's king and this this looks like this is it this is a this is a house for my name God has built a house temple is there. The king's palace is there. Solomon is there, reigning with wisdom and splendor and majesty. This looks like heaven on earth. It looks like utopia. A wise king. Good relationships with the neighbors. Security on the borders. Peace. Prosperity. Happiness. It's as good as it gets. But not so fast. Because the last thing that we see, the tragic twist in the tale, is the fall of a king, 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter, his first wife. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Such a sobering story. Solomon had been so magnificent, and then he fails in a really significant way. And when we read this account in 1 Kings 11, the question is, well, what happened to Solomon's wisdom? Why did he suddenly become daft? Where did his wisdom go? Why is this man on earth given wisdom by God, and he seems to become daft rather than wise? What happened? And uh, the real tragedy is that Solomon falls into exactly the Errors that God had previously warned kings against. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is teaching, and Moses knows that at some point a king will be appointed in Israel. And God, through Moses, gives instructions about what a king must and mustn't do. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 17 the king must not. Acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. But Solomon did go to Egypt to to buy many horses. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. But Solomon did take many wives and his heart was led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. But Solomon accumulated Piles of silver and gold. And he must not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. And turn from the law to the right or to the left. And it seems that Solomon did consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. And his heart did turn from the law of God. Solomon makes the mistakes that we wouldn't want rulers to make. But that they so often do. He uh, gets... Distracted by the completely bog-standard list of sin, the trinity of money, sex, and power. And how did that happen? Why did it happen? The Bible doesn't really tell us. We can speculate. Maybe he just got distracted. Maybe he got in, there's a sense of entitlement. Maybe he got too comfortable. I wonder if he just got bored. That can happen. You accomplish everything there is to accomplish, the book of Ecclesiastes untangles this somewhat. It's kind of Solomon's testimony at the end of his life, a sense of boredom. I've uh, heard it suggested by those who've been close to Putin that maybe some of what Putin's doing at the moment is actually because he's just got to a place of boredom. What next? And you wonder if that happened with Solomon. Now, it's not just kings and presidents who make these kind of mistakes. At, at our own little level, we can make these kind of mistakes as well. In the kingdoms of our own hearts, we can lose sight of what wisdom is and can start to be daft. And so often it is around the unholy trinity of money, sex, and power things which seem to offer us the world, seem to put me in control, things which are good servants but make very poor masters. Money is good. You need money to get stuff done. Sex is good pleasurable and produces children which we need if the human race isn't to die out and power is good because the human race is meant to rule and we're meant to exercise authority to make stuff happen but these good servants become very poor masters very poor masters and the tragedy of Solomon he was the great king the greatest king but he actually seems to end up enslaved Rather than enjoying the freedom of his wisdom and the freedom of the blessings he'd received and the freedom of the security in which he lived, he seems to become enslaved by the things with which he has surrounded himself. And we shouldn't think ourselves immune from these things. These, these temptations, these sins, operate in subtle and sneaky ways. And it's easy when we think about sins like this to think about the, kind of the gross examples. We think about the out-and-out materialist who's clearly completely obsessed by money and possessions, or we think about the sex addict who's just overwhelmed by desire for prostitutes and pornography, or we think about the dictator who's abusing power. It's easy to say the problem is for that kind of extreme example, but often these things work in a much less obvious but no less real way. That these things wrap themselves around our hearts, how we organize our lives, the places we put our hope, our confidence, our trust, how we measure, assess, value other people. All these things get tangled up in these temptations, in these powers, these sins. And we can often think that these three, money, sex, and power, are particularly temptations of the young, vulnerabilities of the young. But look what it says. As Solomon grew old, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. It was as he grew old that his heart became corrupted. And often that seems to be the way. You might not think of Vladimir Putin as an old man, but he's 69, he's certainly not a young man. It's often as people grow old that these temptations, these powers become particularly difficult, particularly problematic. Think about myself, I think now that I'm in my 50s, maybe the temptations I experienced are a bit different from those I experienced in my 20s, but I don't think they're any less, any less tempting or any less fiery. They don't go away. And actually they can be multiple. There's a sense in which as you get older, actually, they can become more challenging because it's as you accumulate more, as you accumulate more power or more money, actually some of these sins become more problematic. Or older people can actually, they could be like jiu veterans, Maybe not the strongest, but just from experience can wrap other people up. It's old people who tend to be manipulative, controlling people. These are problems of old age, not just of young age. Solomon was a great king, but he forgot that he wasn't the king. And we need a greater king than ourselves. We need a king, the one who is the pearl of great price, the priceless treasure. We need the true son of David, the one in whom and by whom we can overcome and not make the mistakes of Solomon. The Apostle John writing to the churches, 1 John chapter 2 says this, I'm writing to you dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Well John the saying to us there is that whether we are young or whether we are old, our only hope is the true son of David. It's through him that our sins are forgiven, and it's through him that we can overcome, not make the mistakes that Solomon did. Jesus, the true son of David, is the one who is fully wise and fully blessed and able to bring us into real security and who invites us to dwell with him in his house. This is what John Piper says about this. The ultimate purpose of the monarchy of Israel, all these kings, Saul, David, Solomon, all the kings who came after them, the ultimate purpose of the monarchy of Israel will be finally realized as Jesus sits on the throne of his father David and reigns not only over redeemed Israel, but over a kingdom of worshippers from all nations. They will see him exalted as Lord of lords and King of kings. And the good news is that we get to be part of that now. Jesus, in his amazing kindness and grace to us, has already revealed himself to us, a pearl beyond all price, a treasure It's worth abandoning all else for in order to obtain. We are invited to enter into the household of God, to worship the king, to worship the son of David, to enter his house, to live there with wisdom and in security and in blessing. He is the great king. He is the Lord of lords. And he has flung open the doors of his house that we might dwell with him now and forever, that we might be happy in the courts of the king, and display the truth of his blessing to all the nations of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you that you are King David's greater, greatest son. You are the true king. Thank you that you are the costliest treasure. Thank you that what we have in you is more precious, more desirable than all the gold and silver and the stuff that Solomon acquired. Thank you that in you there is true wisdom. Thank you in you there's true security. Thank you that in you there is true blessing. And thank you that you have come to dwell amongst us and invited us to be citizens of your kingdom and members of your household. Lord, pray for us. I pray that we would live as people who are wise. We'd know the wisdom of God and the blessing of God. And we would would display this to those around us, the treasure that we have found in Christ Jesus, the wonderful good news of the gospel, that we might be a people, this might be a church, which does live to the praise of your glory, displaying the splendor of the King, celebrating you, rejoicing in you, and praising your name, great King of heaven and earth. We love you, we worship you, we praise you now. Amen.